Hi and welcome to a special episode of our Experiencing Consciousness podcast. We are Roxana Erickson, Catherine Rossi, and I'm Jan Dipa. We are so happy you are here. Welcome everyone to our podcast. I am Dr. Catherine Rossi with Jan Dipa and Roxana Erickson Klein and for our podcast today, we're going to talk about body-mind therapy within hypnosis. And um, this has been an interest of mine, I think, since I was born. And um, that right from the beginning of becoming a psychotherapist and also in studying psychology, I was really curious of where does the body fit in. And um, the vast majority of our field They seem to be focused on cognitive, behavioral, emotional. And while that's good, I think there's more to being human than that. And one of that, those elements is the body. So the prefrontal cortex is going to be like, you know, in in the forehead region. And I'm really interested in the other 95% of the body joining in. So what do you think about that, Roxy? Well, one of the things that's always been of interest to me is that my father's work, Erickson's work, he always wanted to get people up, moving, experiencing, doing this, doing that. And it seemed like really instead, I mean, I would never imagine him saying, well, well, what do you think of that? He didn't start there. He's like, well, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Why don't you go over and explore it? Why don't you do, why don't you participate in some active physiological manner? And I think that that integration of um, working through a problem with the physical body, with the senses, is really something that is a really standout feature of his work. Well, I would I would add to that because when you since you mentioned Dr. Milton H. Erickson, when I'm thinking about him and his work and his life and everything that he went through, I think that he has he had that kind of special kind of focus and experience connected with his body and with all the things that the body actually gave him and all the challenges that it actually you know um, brought on him uh wouldn't you say that this actually somehow uh created within him some special attention or focus towards that 95 percent of of you of 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 ever of anyone yeah I think that his interest in the integration of mind and body predated his experience with polio. And when he talked to us about the experiments that he did with other kids to get them if he could follow them through the deep snow and then he'd take a circuitous route, Instead of walking from point A to point B, he'd take this circular roundabout here and there and everywhere. And then he'd go back and he'd watch, are the are the kids that come after going to follow my footsteps 
the meander this way and that, or they, they know where they're going. We're all walking to school. So are they going to go straight from, you know, from here to there? Are they going to experience the meandering in a very indirect way? And so he was exploring this well before he um, was stricken with polio. And of course, once he had polio, then there was this gigantic disconnect of his mind was working, but his body wasn't responding. So, so he began to explore the rehabilitation of his body using his mind and to reinforce his, his re, to integrate it in a much, much deeper way than most people have the opportunity to do. And you know, one of the things that Ernie said about Erickson, this is after Ernie had his stroke. And then what he said about Erickson was, he was even better at rehabilitation than he was at hypnosis. And for those eight years that Ernie spent with him and Erickson taught him a lot about rehabilitation. And let me tell you, after Ernie had his stroke, so there was a certain paralysis. There was a difficulty with speech. There's, you know, that unfortunately, the integrity of his mind was left intact. It was just like a few of these physical things. And Ernie went right into being fascinated with what his body could do and he never once not once was he negative he never felt sorry for himself he had this this superpower of knowledge of erickson as in rehabilitation and uh, partly in naming the you know certain um volumes of the collected works, you know, was really about rehabilitation and mm -hmm. hadn't thought about it in this particular realm when we were thinking about this subject, but it becomes really powerful. And because um, we think about that, we work with people on emotional levels to deal with psychological problems. And yet, don't we all need to be well-versed in rehabilitation too? <laughs> So, so one of the things about the mind-body and body-mind connection is the way emotions and enthusiasm and positive attitudes express themselves on a physiological level that we don't even fully understand. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I would, I would agree. And part of what we can do as psychotherapists is bring that to a conscious attention instead of just a habit. But, um, uh, and I think that sometimes when, you know, in using certain hand processes to help people enter into trance, so in using an, an induction uh, method where you're looking at your hands as if you're seeing them for the first time, so it becomes novel of, uh, and is one hand warmer, is one hand cooler? You start asking these sensory questions so that people can go into 
this um, 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 body mind experience instead of mind body. Okay, so let me ask you a question that you are just that you just started to give answer to. Okay, because I wanted to ask you, you know, because what we are saying here, body mind hypnotherapy, body mind approach, and cognitive behavioral emotional and the other 95 percent mm -hmm. so my question is so how to actually do it i mean how to in integrate this 95 percent mm -hmm. into the therapy how do you actually include the whole body and everything else into the therapy and can so i think my question is a bit about the model itself but mm -hmm. i think that if, if you could give us some example or examples i mean you know how to do it then we could kind of build on that okay um i think that 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 you know in one of the um the the simplest easiest to access forms because i can get you know out into the stratospheres of the joy of including the body but when you when you think about the tried and true what's likely to work for everyone and so then that becomes practical. It, it really is the use of the hands, um, you know, hand models in the course of, of helping people to enter into a trance, helping people to be able to um, do what I call bypassing the conscious mind, is that if we could just think things through, no one would ever need to come to psychotherapy because you would have thought it through. But we have to work on different levels of consciousness. So in some respects, it's like really direct, but it's also distracting from the uh, the the linear thinking mind. And um, uh, so there, like certainly, whatever you see that that person is doing physically is a uh, subtle clue of where they are within the process. And often when you're sitting with someone in psychotherapy, all of a sudden their eyes will drift. You know, it's like they'll look up to the sky or they'll look down. They're, they're making a body-mind signal that they're going into a different state of consciousness. And so if you responded with the linear mind, what are you doing? You're not looking at me. Are you okay? You're going to bring somebody back into yeah, the consciousness. You don't mind. pay attention. Yeah, you know, so it's like, hey, I'm over here, you know. Um, but the sensitive psychotherapist says, "Aha, they're going into a different state of consciousness, and that different state of consciousness that they're going into is trance." And let's follow them with these minimal cues to see where they want to go. Now, often that's the way that I work. But when you're learning how to do this, the, the simplicity of using the hands um, is, is really important. Now, why do you use the hands? Well, the representative of the brain, um, you know, when you go into um, uh, uh, looking at the, the sensory motor aspects of the amount of territory on the brain that's dedicated to that. It is massive with the hands. And so when you think about success, and I want everybody to be successful and confident, 
why don't you go with that which is represented so heavily in the brain with the body and it's going to be the hands it's going to be the lips the tongue it's going to be the eyes um it's going to be the ears so that's why you go in with the sensitivity which is a word that that ernie almost always used look at your hands with great sensitivity and as i say that to you what happens, Roxy, when I say the word sensitivity? What's evoking you? Engage the senses, sight, sound, feeling, sensations. You engage the internal working through experiencing. You engage the body. And are you thinking about your problem as I say no. that? <laughs> no, you're not thinking about your problem. You've been distracted for a moment. Right. The problem. So, um, and uh, uh, an element of hypnosis that isn't necessarily discussed maybe as much as it could is pattern interruption. Yes. And, uh -huh. um, and so in a really gentle way, in a really loving way, in a really natural way, when you bring in the focus on the body, um, that is consistent with what that person themselves is experiencing, that that becomes the avenue of induction. And ultimately, when you're using the, I call it uh, coming from a body-mind experience because it's, it's taking away the linear mind, you, you want to help a person enter a, a state where they're going to be open to what comes next. They're going to be open to maybe really diving deep into what the problem is. And hopefully to do that with curiosity and fearlessness. So engaging um, a tremendous amount of the brain in this process is to engage the hands and to engage the senses. Now, Jan, you were asking more on the um, uh, procedures, I believe. Well, general frame and then uh, some exemplification so that people listening to us could, you know, understand based on mm -hmm. on some some examples how to how to use that or what does it actually mean. And by the way, when you said what 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 kind of what was what, what is triggered when you say sensitivity in my case it was something else than senses yeah what happened when i heard sensitivity i felt i it was basically it turns my attention to feelings because sensitivity means to me turning inward and like mm -hmm. focusing on on feelings so i immediately my attention went uh, inside of me inward mm -hmm. and focusing on where i am you know within my body how do i feel mm -hmm. and so that that that's what happened so automatically my associations were turn inward and focus on whatever happens in there mm -hmm. that was uh, that's what happened well which is which brings up something that is vital is everybody's going to receive it a little bit differently mm -hmm. and so it's those individual differences that means that we don't necessarily have a protocol. Do number one, then number two, then number three, and then number four is that um, each person is going to have their way that they 
naturally go into this, and which also going to be modified over time within that individual. So for um, um, and this is this is why when I'm asked for examples and things, it's just so darn individual. But the um, uh, that really in the way to begin is is with sensitivity and whatever sensitivity means to that particular person. And if they um, turn to you and they say, oh, well, doctor, this doesn't interest me. I want to talk to you about, you know, my little brother keeps kicking me under the table or whatever the problem is. Obviously, I'm bringing him the lighthearted problem. Um, and then it's like, you know, that's true. And it means that they're not in that place where they can actually go inside. You have to give them you know, like a few more minutes where they want to talk things yeah, through. And, and some empathy. And some empathy and, um, uh, you know, some empathy and often a little bit of humor, mm -hmm. you know, when you're me of, um, you know, like really appreciating that. Yes, that is really irritating, isn't it? But, you know, in doing it in in such a way that is is good natured about it. And then, um, uh, you know, being able to ask the series of questions. So this is this is part of that um, a therapist is um, a, a really great therapist. There's a lot of good therapists out there. You wanna be great, is that to be able to, to follow what the person, what the client is doing. And that um, typically when someone comes in to psychotherapy, so they walk through the door, hello, how are you? Sit down. They usually need about 20 minutes to debrief before they're able to go into any kind of meaningful therapy. And uh, all of us have experienced this over and over and over again. And you know, where they're making that connection with you, they're also making a connection with themselves and they're centering in. And um, so when you talk about, um, you know, like the strategies of, of what you do, you, you know, in being very sensitive, is this person ready to go into deep work right away? Sometimes they are, but if they're not of, you know, understanding that this is the easing into it kind of situation. Uh, the idea is that everybody feels comfortable and safe to go into a place where they can explore. Is that how you see it, Roxy? Exactly, that's what I wanted to ask. Wait, wait, wait. Because I wanted to ask the, uh, that question a bit differently. Okay. I wanted to include in it, generally my question was, so how do you include body in your mode of therapy? Oh, well, okay. So one of the, um, Recalling what my dad liked to do, and one of his favorite induction techniques, one of his favorite demonstration techniques, was the hand levitation, where he would sometimes let me just he would sometimes I just for you know. position someone's hand and then very, very, very carefully disengage and leave the individual's hand suspended in space. And then he'd go on, he would go on and make contact with them and just leave that hand suspended in space. And then he, at a different point in therapy, he would turn attention to 
you know, what's that? And the, the person who would be at this point so deeply engaged in their trans processing would frequently look over and not even recognize that that hand is attached to themselves. And so he would make lighthearted comments about, you know, wh whose hand is that? And use it as a technique to deepen their introspection and, and confusion and exploratory sense. And he'd laugh and say, well, what, you know, what's it doing, what's it doing up there? <laughs> Are you sure that it's your hand? <laughs> So, so that was one of his, his techniques of really challenging our sensation of mind and body. Because when you're deeply engaged in trance, you can leave it suspended essentially indefinitely because you learn how to balance the muscles in just the right way that it, it's stable. But he used that as a technique, not only as trance induction, but then he would use it as trance deepening, and he would use it as trance ratification, and he would use it to show the audience that something different is going on here. We're not in an ordinary state of awareness. So, so that was one of his favorite techniques and it always amazes me that I'll get because this technique is still being taught in multiple places you know multiple places around the world and sometimes in a group induction I'll see somebody lifting lifting something their hand like that okay they've been through that before they've been through that training um, but at any, and then at the conclusion, he would take and, and or he would give permission, you can lower your hand now, whatever, at the conclusion, when he's ready to wake up the individual, but he would never interrupt the flow of the therapeutic work with getting back to the hand. That was just a tool to, you know, to, for the induction for the exploration, for the ratification, to, to remind them that this is a different experience. We're in looking at the mind, looking at the body in a totally different way. But in terms of my own, I don't, I rarely use the hand levitation technique. Um, the, but what I use, and, and you know, I just want to say, most hypnotherapists, particularly the beginning, you know, training, start with close your eyes, take a deep breath and get in a comfortable position. And that's kind of centering the body in a way that you can then escape your body. But that's kind of the standard entrance into a trance that we're saying the body is not going to get in the way now. But what I like to do my way, 
of using mind and body with transinduction, and we're talking about procedural, is I like to begin with essentially a relaxation. I like to use formal trances and I use a relaxation technique. And then I enter in my, in my um, commands or guidance, I start using the confusion of taking voluntary deep breaths versus automatically breathing just as your body needs to. And I can really develop, you know, that um, intentional and unintentional disparity in a very confusing way. So I'll talk about that for a while and then I'll give it permission to deep breath. And by then I've gone through it enough that I'm fairly certain that the subject is exploring their physical presence in a different and deeper way. And so that, for me, that's kind of a, you know, guidepost into a trance state where now we can begin to talk about some other issues that the other reasons for coming into the office. That's pretty interesting, you know, so, so often you use it almost like as a transition of, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. helping a person, you know, really getting into that, um, into that space. And, no. um, you know, um, what I love about our talks together is that, that you work in one way that is, you know, so successful. And I work in a way that's often the opposite. And yet we still get there. And right. um, this is like, this is, such a big takeaway is to find your own way. And um, I, I rarely, almost never introduce anything associated with rex relaxation in the beginning. Mm -hmm. almost never. And um, when I heard the story about Erickson, and, uh, and he would describe relaxation, at least this was through Ernie. Um, is that you do that after a job well done. It's like uh, if you are um, on a farm, you know, as Erickson was, and so there's cows to milk and this and that, you know, um, uh, that you go out and you work and you really put in a good day's work and then you come home and you can really relax after a great day's work. And for whatever reason, that just seemed to stick with me. And so um, when I think about um, when, when someone is coming to you for therapy, it's usually because there's a problem, there's a trauma, there's an anxiety, there's a heightening of, um, um, of themselves, it, which is the polar opposite of relaxation. And mm -hmm. I actually go with that of um, like even in, in part of it, can you, you know, where are you on a scale of one to 10? Oh, you're at a six. Well, that's pretty good. I wonder if you can make it up to an eight. You know, I mean, this, this sort of thing of really going to the heights because I know what goes up is gonna come down. And that, um, 
So there's two schools of thought on it. And um, one is not right and one is not wrong. And it's any given situation of what it is. And so, um, you know, I, I might uh, even like with the hand levitation, which is, is really fun. And Ernie taught me the simple skills of doing the hand levitation. And of course, everything works on me. So he would just barely touch the bottom of my wrists you know, and that would go, you know, it would go up there. But um, um, that even it's like, wow, you really can't move that arm, can you? No, I really can't move that arm. You try to move it and you really can't. No, I really can't move that. Wow, it's uncomfortable because I can't move it because it really wants to stay the same. It's like, okay, just let that go and let's see what happens next. And then what happens next is that they they go away from their body that that it's like all right that's happening then i'm gonna go inside and they're often um primed really to go into the depth of what it is that they've been unable to face or ascertain you know in going into um what young used to call the deep deep uh, the deep night of the soul you know, where you have to look at things, experience things that you've been kind of avoiding because it's painful. And so mm -hmm. for me, sometimes like, you know, the, the, the uh, hand levitation, which, you know, for anyone who hasn't experienced it, it's odd. And it's really, really odd when you're thinking, wait a second, I, I know how to voluntarily move my arm and I can't or my hand and it doesn't want to. So you have to come to a comfort of that within yourself, knowing that you will be able to do it in time, you just can't do it right now. And it's also a novel thing. So mm -hmm. it brings right. up a numinosum or at least neurogenesis effects. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that it will. I think that it will, but mostly when I've experienced it, and then, of course, there's the people, even if they haven't been trained in hand levitation, when people are doing some of these hand processes, and so maybe they're naturally pushing something away and pulling something towards them, and then sometimes there ends up being this paralysis, mm -hmm. you know, in, 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 in a certain position where it just plain doesn't move, which is akin to hand levitation that mm -hmm. happens kind of all by itself, and so it's well, by way of contrast, what does your other hand, you know, bring it into action? And, it, and it's where you're not saying what it is. And they might be going like all around with that hand that is, you know, um, I think the proper word is it's catatonic. It's just plain not moving. And um, because it's so odd, you can't help but be engaged with it. You know, when right. it's when you're experiencing it. And also, um, sometimes these methods have been used with people. They say, oh, I don't go into trance. Nope, can't make me go into trance. Like, okay, no problem. You know, and then they might go into one of these and it's a little harder for them to deny that they're actually experiencing trance. Now, do I care if someone understands they're in trance or not? Not really. I, I want to have them to have an endpoint where there's a problem that's resolved or another comfort that has come or being able to ask 
a more pertinent question to the inside of themselves. But mm -hmm. um, but sometimes with this, you know, catatonia, um, that it's so weird that it 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 like brings it to the attention of the person of whoa, something's really happening here. I don't know what it is. Right. Have you had that experience, Jan? Well, uh, yeah. So, so sometimes when I when I, when I you know, especially when I started doing and not when I started doing hypnosis. When I started doing hypnosis, everything was novel. You know, it's like <laughs> I remember my first induction. I was for fourteen or thirteen, and I did that from from a book. Mm -hmm. You know, and I did that like almost quoting everything, and then the, the guy actually another 13 year old went into trance and I was like how the hell is that even possible so everything whatever you know happened <laughs> everything was novel but when uh, I was trusting someone enough to put to to you know open open to them enough so that they can put me in a trance everything was like this I mean you know and those weird experiences were actually uh, to me, it was Im important to to have them because that actually convinced me that I'm in an altered state. Uh, Erickson would say, and uh, uh, or Dr. Rossi also would say that this is um, what do they call that? Uh, I just uh, my the word pop up pop out of my head, but it was like uh, ratification, yeah, ra the ratification of a trance that someone can actually experience and being aware. Mm -hmm that they are not aware of something or mm -hmm. being aware that something's automatic, like in this moment, mm -hmm. that was my experience, you know? So whatever strange happened, it was like, wow, I'm really in a different state. And I can also see it in, in my clients when when we're working, we, you know, we can work in a trance in such a way that they don't know that they are in a trance and mm -hmm. that reduces the resistance, mm -hmm. strategic resistance towards the procedure and everything else, but also, on the other hand, when they can experience something like that, you know, they can experience like uh, catalepsy or the paralysis of the whole body or different different like sensations or hallucination or anything like that, they, then that is a powerful tool to kind of deepen the change because then, you know, the whole experience becomes something, something else, something different. And then you know, they are many people are convinced by that kind of kinds of things that they really can do something. And sometimes even it goes, I mean, in my experience to from this point, since I can, I know how to do this, I also be able to do this and that, for example, a lot of confidence. So it's like, yeah, exactly. So that was my experience. And I also think to, to put that into conclusion that Sometimes it's important for the client, sometimes, you know, to actually experience those things on their own and be aware that they are not aware of everything mm -hmm. in this particular yes. moment. Yes, I mean, I think that um, it's human nature to take yourself too seriously mm -hmm. and um, that there's all of these other outside influences and internal influences that if you only have the... Uh, the awareness to be able to access that it might help you and um that's really the story what were you thinking roxy well i was just thinking about a fellow that i saw a, a few weeks ago and at the time we were talking about setting goals for therapy and that i didn't care whether the 
subject knew whether they were hypnotized or not. The 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 um the measure of success is going to be something that we mutually agree upon. And the fellow that I had seen that day, he and he, he was a painter, but he was a, an artist, and he was experiencing some some artist block. He wasn't able to, and he said he would look at the canvas and it would just be all bl black, and he couldn't he couldn't get moving. And so so I used you know some hypnotic suggestion with him. And um, indirect, it was all indirect. And then at the conclusion of the session, I don't like to debrief. That's not my style. I don't debrief. But then the next time that the client comes in, I ask him, what do you remember about the trance stick? Okay. And so he came in two weeks later. And he said, well, the hypnosis didn't work. He remember he heard every word. And um, he didn't think the hypnosis was necessary. And um, so I said, oh, you know, okay, well, we, do you want to continue coming in? Or do you, you know, where, where are we going from here? You know, I kind of switched to that. And he said, no, no, he definitely needed to talk with me about it. And so when the conversation wheedled around to, you know, how are you doing with your artwork, which I was very, tread very lightly with that. And he said, well, when he had left my office, he'd seen this little mylar balloon and he took a picture of it and he pulls it up in his phone he shows it to me and I just looked at it. I couldn't make heads or tails about what what's interesting about a mylar balloon and then he said I think this is gonna work for me and I'm like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> that'll be interesting to see so then on his third appointment he came in and again, and I was open with them. It says we can do hypnosis, we can talk, we can talk about your artwork, we can talk about your neighbors. This is your, you know, I'm here to serve you. And he said, well, he wanted to talk about his artwork. And he drew up, he drew up on his phone these images that that he had. It was like the glint of light off of the mylar balloon. It was as if it opened a channel into his unconscious mind. He painted the most beautiful pictures. It was just awe-inspiring. And so then I felt a little freedom to ask him, well, you know, you know, how did how did that come about? Or tell me more about it. And he's like, well, it's just flowing right through him. It's like there is no intentionality. It's just, you know, it's just coming out of his paintbrush on the on the canvas. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's exciting, isn't it? So, so, so then he concluded after three sessions. That was, you know, the first session was the hypnotic session, the, which he declared didn't work. The second session was that he had had this glimmer of the mylar balloon, and the third that he was flowing. 
Okay. So, you know, I had told him on the first visit, when we set the measure of success, I don't care whether you enjoy hypnosis. I don't care whether you feel like you're hypnotized. I don't, you know, I don't care whether it's a comfortable experience or whether you feel like you're working really hard. That's not what we're here for. We're here for you to make some, you know, advancement towards resolution of the problems that bring you into my office today. And so, so that was, in a way, that whole experience, you know, was it the hypnosis that opened the door? Well, I think it was, but maybe it wasn't. But I don't need to know whether it was or wasn't because he got the, you know, he got the movement flowing in the way it needed to flow. And that's a mind-body integration that we, you know, that goes beyond logical, conscious, cognitive understanding or ability to really explain. And well, what's interesting about that is that I know that um, um, a lot of the ways that people are looking at things is, you know, strategic strategy. How do you get from here to there? It's, it's like where our field is right now. And I really respect it big time. But then there's this story that you're telling. And, um, and it's that no matter what strategy you as the therapist might have in mind was actually irrelevant. Right. Because he got what he needed in the way that he needed to get it. And, it is- um, and that there isn't this through line of cognition of, well, I got to point A, then I went to point B, then I went to point C. And I find this so often in um, uh, in the world of, of therapeutic hypnosis and that it's way okay if, if you, the therapist, are seeing it one way, I would be seeing it the same way you saw it, Roxy. But it's okay that you see it this way, but he didn't. And, um, and I think that this kind of flexibility of, um, of mind is that, you know, something that, uh, you know, I appreciate about you're really solid, good person. And you also don't have an ego. It's like, Hey, however it comes, if it works for you, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. And I, I think that, um, if, if there is a strategy to apply along here, it's in in making the flow of these things and not as a therapist being a, attached to how the outcome happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, as you talk about this case, and the first one was hypnosis, the second one was didactic, so it was talking, and the third one was really integration you know, right. of what, right. he, what he got. So when you can look at it in retrospect, well, then that's the strategy that the first session was hypnosis and the second one was didactic and the third one was um, putting it all together. Right. It's only after the fact that we can describe it. And, and yet, you know, with the next person that comes in, will that, that uh, work? 
or, or, or could it be that the first three sessions of one person happens to be hypnosis and then you have two that is didactic and one that is integration or two or three or whatever. I mean, so it, it can be uh, kind of a little bit of a model, but um, it's the flexibility that matters. And um, that I'm with you, if that client is, if they got what they needed, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. that, as far as gratification goes, I've done, I've done good work, Roxy. You know, and I, I even joke with the client of, you know, I'm going to claim this as a success, even though I know you did all the work. <laughs> and I'm going to claim it. <laughs> with it, I'm still going to mark it down as a, as a plus for me. So, so I can joke with, you know, joke with people about the success that they make, even as I'm indirectly, you know, reinforcing, I'm acknowledging that whatever work went on inside you went on inside you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, that comes back to the axiom of um, uh, the burden of psychotherapy is on the client mm -hmm. and on, on the therapist. We do our best to kind of guide, maybe coach, you know, I mean, having this flexibility so that they can find their own unique way. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so I, you know, I think that when we really talk about, you know, body, mind therapy, what we're saying is let's bring the whole person in, you mm -hmm. know, of, um, uh, and wholeness yeah. really matters to me. And mm -hmm. if somebody comes in and what is, what is their um, experience of wholeness is being with their mind. Great. You know, uh, as, so I don't push the body thing, even though that's the orientation I come from. It's it's really what's whole for you, what's working for you. Yeah, and I I will I will add to 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 the pre previous to the fact because you said about the burden of you mentioned the burden of responsibility on a client. I will I would I need to build on that a bit more. Mm -hmm. Because that that's actually important, but you know, many people actually say that the burden of responsibility is on a client, and that's that kind of nowadays it even to me sometimes becomes a phrase that mm. people repeat, but they don't actually. That's not meaningful. You know, exactly, but I mean, so generally, probably most of the therapists would agree nowadays that the burden of responsibility is on the client, as opposed to what what was, um, let's say in the modern psychotherapy in like 80s or 70s or 60s but uh there's a there's a huge depth in this um actual statement because one thing that 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 we are actually referring here to is the fact that the technique is good only if it helps the client so you know we can actually have an incredible technique mm -hmm so complex and so deep that actually will do nothing and then <laughs> you can do a simple thing and then that's it that works for the client and the other thing the the coolest thing actually i think it was david burns who did a research and what he did he actually 
was asking, he did a quite simple thing because he was asking um, the therapists about what, how do they think the session went on? What do they think if they were helpful, if the session was helpful to the client and so on? And then he did the same with the clients. He asked the clients, what do they think about the session? And there was no correlation at all. So many times the therapists thought that the session was super great, incredible, and the, the and the, and the client would say that it was crappy and nothing actually was involving or, or nothing happened. And then many times on the opposite end of that, therapists would say, this session was crappy, nothing happened. And the client was, this session was the best out of all. So generally what David Burns actually showed is that the as the, the how therapists evaluate the session doesn't match at all how that how how clients evaluate this session. so so that's one thing and it's actually to me that was pretty interesting in terms of the burden of responsibility but also the other thing from the point since i represent the strategic kind of point of view so in how I, how i see it I mean, you know, you can have a strategy in, in your mind and you can have a plan and then you can have the goals and everything and everything set. And it's very important for me, actually, to know what I'm doing and be like, oh, of course, following the client, but at the mm -hmm. same time, looking a bit ahead of the time and, you know, kind of plan and then modify it and so on. But then I also am totally aware that this is my hypothesis and I mean, it's good to have it because it's good to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But then at the at the same time, I'm totally aware that what works in this process is client's insight and mm -hmm. client's associations and client's, um, you know, ways of utilizing their own resources and everything else. So I'm actually only activating things. So mm -hmm. what, what what this comes to is that you can have a strategy mm -hmm. and it may work, mm -hmm. but you'd never know if that what worked was the same thing that you were thinking to do. So, <laughs> so, you know, I, I agree. And, you know, um, relatively early on in my career, I made an experiment with myself on that. And uh, because, you know, I, I mean, I was like relatively new and, you know, as a therapist and I wanted to know was I effective. And so I would have an idea of what I thought was the turning point in the session. And uh, so I would ask the client because they would agree, yeah, that something really happened here. It's great. And I would say, what was the turning point for you? Not once was it what I thought it was for me. And um, and it and so it's kind of fun. It's it's sort of like when it's appropriate because you don't want to uh, impede on on that client. You know, you want them to continue doing what they're doing. But um, it made me so humble when mm -hmm. uh, when that was the case, because, you know, again, I mean, it was early on and and I was thinking that, you know, maybe I knew something and um, uh, and and I do, of course, you know, we all know we all know things. But um, uh, th that my turning point of where I'm really sensing it, it's OK if it's not the same as the clients as long as they get there yeah and then i had one experience there was one day and um i i i was very good about not bringing my own problems into 
you know, I left those outside of the therapy room, but there was one day that I just took a real huge emotional blow and I honestly could not pay attention to a single client that came in that day and there was six of them. And as I'm sitting there with them and I was saying to myself, when I see them next time, I'm not gonna charge them for the session because I wasn't emotionally there. And so that's how I dealt with my own, you know, um, uh, uh, ethics on the situation. And half of them said, you know, I don't know, I wanna pay. That was like the best session we ever did. And um, again, it's like this, this really humble place of the fact that at least I was acknowledging to them and in each case, I did not accept money for the that that's you know that next session. And I said, I have to do this for me because if I'm not emotionally here and hundred percent for you, I can't take your money. I'm so <laughs> happy it worked out well for you. I really am. But um, but I, I gotta go with my my own morals and ethics. And it was just, I'm happy to tell you all these years, it was just that one day. But um, it, it taught me a lot about it. And, um, you know, again, sometimes it's, you know, it's okay to ask, you know, sometimes it's not. But um, I think that just about anyone, you're going to be surprised if you check in of um, that, that uh, maybe you planted a seed uh, in what you thought was the turning point. But, uh, you know, that, that seed maybe had to grow a little bit. And so that they found that there was a different turning point with it or their realization when there's a turning point because there's often a lag time with that. But yes, I mean, it's, it's, um, and as we talk, it's like, do we really know anything? <laughs> do we have so much to learn? And, um, and, and we're constantly learning and we're constantly, you know, not know, not know so much. And we're learning Mm -hmm. to, well, go, to go around it well yeah and you know I mean and Ernie and I used to say every day we're in kindergarten we're here to learn and uh, which I think is a really good thing but it's 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 good to be able to have a, a great sense of humor about how we we really do go in and we 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 give our best at the time almost every therapist is giving the best that they can at the time yeah. And or at least that's, you know, how you go to sleep really well at night, knowing you you did the best you could at the time. And um, and that our joy is when you see somebody getting what they want, whether it was um, your strategy or your method or your getting them to move or not move, that um, that's really where the joy is. Mm -hmm. Yes. And actually, they did it. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I'm thinking that that um, we've had a great time with this subject matter. And of course, we could go on for another three or 400 hours on this because of the, the strategies will. and the interests yeah. in this and that. But, um, but we've had another successful time of um, three um, really independent thinking therapists that have had so much blessed success with our clients to help them to get what they want. 
And we all work a little bit differently and we're really good about listening to each other. And I know I certainly learned a few things today that I'm going to apply. Yeah. And that's the joy of listening to other peers and colleagues that they've got approaches that we may not use, but we can still learn from them. Exactly. We, sometimes we, mean, we, we, we may not even think about them, but then when someone tells us, it's like, you know, highlighting new horizons. Exactly. Right. It goes into the, well, maybes. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe I could. By the way, I don't know if anyone noticed, but today, like, we can do this. <laughs> <laughs> because we are at the same spot. Dr. Kuchinrothi <laughs> is today with me in Zakopane in Lesser Poland district of the Republic of Poland, Europe. Having an amazing time. I've, um, I'm just in love with the Polish people and how they think and how they strategize. And um, this is just a real blessing to be here. And we're trying to convince Dr. Roxana Erickson to come here and visit us one day or another in the future now. <laughs> Thank you for the invite. You never know, Roxy. You never know. You're always welcome. And be aware that this actual place that we are in has actually two separate uh, bedrooms mm -hmm. and one additional living room. So, you know, you can. Have yes, your own we could spaces. be together and it's Excellent. very luxurious. And the mountains right outside the window. And um, you never know, Roxy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so thank you very much for this outstanding, incredible podcast on body-mind approach to hypnotherapy and also on deep trance a, mm -hmm. a bit. Mm -hmm. So once again, thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you. Bye. This was another episode of our Experiencing Consciousness podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jan. You're the best. Be well, be happy, celebrate life.